Peace and blessings to the people. How's everybody doing? My name is Omar J. De Jesus, and I am the host of Second Chance, Voices of the Unheard. My podcast talks about the second chance people received after doing time in an institution, innocent or guilty, while changing a poisonous narrative of pr- prisoners' perception. For the most part, people returning to society are outcasted. So my job is to give people an opportunity and a platform to tell their stories. Everybody deserves a second chance. So I want to talk about something me and my brother were speaking on a while ago. And a conversation came up between me and my brother Peace and blessings to the brother Shirefic also about housing projects. Housing projects was created because it was very populated and they needed other ways of getting people housing that was really not able to afford housing. So that that created projects, you know, but I also was telling him that there was a reason why they created projects and he wasn't trying to hear me, but that's cool because I'm not going to sit and lie. I'm, I, I, I agree to disagree, but I'm not going to shut myself short from learning some. So I'd rather do my little research and learn you know what I'm saying? Before I just close myself off. So, uh, like I said, I want to play this thing about housing. And um, and then I'm going to also play something else after that. So just listen to it. And, you know, let me know what you think. You know, it's pretty interesting. Today, over 2 million Americans are living in public housing, and that's a sizable number, though it makes up a relatively small percentage of the population, and it's low compared to other nations that offer similar housing initiatives like, say, the UK. In spite of that, we largely only hear news about public housing in the U.S. when there's a moment of crisis or when decisions about state and federal budgets are being handed down. Take, for example, Chicago's Cabrini Green Homes, which were built beginning in 1942 and demolished by 2011 due to highly publicized issues with violence and disrepair. The discourse on public housing structures is generally that they're riddled with maintenance issues, crime and unsightly exteriors, or are the victims of budgetary constraints. And yet, many, if not most, of these developments nationwide are either at close to full occupancy or have very long waiting lists. And residents of public housing are fighting not only for improvements to their homes, but also for the right to remain there. That's despite a shift from thinking of public housing as a long-term resource to treating it as a stopgap on residents' trajectories of success that they should look to move out of eventually. So today, I wanted to go into the history of how we ended up with approximately 3,400 public housing authorities nationwide and why this state-funded resource is still in such high demand. 
The Great Depression marks the beginning of the U.S. federal government's direct funding of public housing. But Professor Lawrence Vail notes in his book on the history of public housing that this is actually part of a larger story about changing attitudes around what constitutes societal responsibility. Namely, when should society assist people in need of housing and what form should that assistance take? According to Vail's research, providing housing for people with either financial constraints or who are unable to care for themselves independently has taken a variety of shapes throughout U.S. history. He writes, before there were public housing projects, there were model tenements, zoning laws, and philanthropic developers. There were settlement houses, working class suburbs, and private charities. There were tax advantages for homeowners, land bounties for worthy veterans, and Homestead Act opportunities for thrifty pioneers. There were overseers of the poor, pauper auctions, and the laws of settlement, and there were almshouses, bridewells, and houses of industry. All of these help to codify the relationships among land tenure, house form, and labor, and all were attempts at improving poor people. So public housing was developed in the 20th century as part of FDR's New Deal and in the midst of the Great Depression. But it was just the latest event in a longer history between government oversight and coded paternalistic language about improving the poor through housing. That mission, although somewhat consistent, didn't always take exactly the same form. In some of the cases listed earlier, the housing assistance came in the form of private charitable donations that built shared homes for poor families, like almshouses. In others, it came in exchange for forced labor, like the case of houses of industry. And in others still, it came in the form of government initiatives and tax breaks for people who were willing to work to expand the continental U.S.'s reach at crucial moments, like the case of the Homestead Act of 1862. But as Vail notes, we often don't include these other forms of housing under the umbrella of public housing or public assistance because we think of them as different from their predecessors. Before there was a discussion of building public housing through the government, housing reform and regulation was the more common conversation. And this largely came through innovations in the field of photojournalism rather than new discoveries in city planning or architecture. In 1890, Danish immigrant Jacob Rees used a newfangled thing called flash photography to document the tenements and lodging houses of New York City's most notorious slums. He published these images of impoverished communities in his book, How the Other Half Lives, which looked to sensationalize and expose the dangerous and deplorable living conditions of the city's poor residents. The book was wildly successful, not only for its harrowing images, but also for stark language about the trials faced by vulnerable populations. As a result, New York City's police commissioner and future president, Theodore Roosevelt, closed a number of notorious lodging houses, and city officials began to more strictly enforce and expand upon existing housing codes. Roosevelt even said of Reese, the countless evils which lurk in the dark corners of our civic institutions, which stalk abroad in the slums and have their permanent abode in the crowded tenement houses, have met in Mr. Reese, the most formidable opponent ever encountered by them in New York City. So at this point, photojournalistic efforts had shown a light on the deplorable conditions of slums, and privately run charitable homes were already an established precedent. That's when the government decided to move beyond just regulating housing to actively providing dwellings for residents. The Federal Housing Administration was created by an act of Congress in 1934, but the relationship between the government and providing safe, cheap housing was already established. This included everything from the forceful frontierism of the Homestead Act to Teddy Roosevelt's regulation of New York. 
York lodging houses. This new entity also made it easier for white U.S. citizens to get loans while redlining communities of color and black communities, which strongly enforce segregation. But this latest iteration of government-assisted housing focused on subsidizing home ownership for a relatively small percentage of the population through mortgage insurance programs. Through these programs, people were allowed to pay an upfront, relatively low down payment, and then to cover the rest of the cost through monthly mortgage payments. This system is commonplace today, but was a relatively new practice at the time. But the government's role in subsidizing housing soon evolved beyond mortgage insurance. When the Housing Act of 1937 was passed, the law looked to create and build subsidized housing, particularly geared towards people that met certain income requirements. This was a radical shift in the scope and mission of the federal government's role in public housing. For the first time, they were getting into the business of building, renting, and maintaining structures specifically designed for this purpose. Although Mayor Daniel Hone of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, built the nation's first public housing project in 1923, the project ended just a few years later under the weight of mounting administrative issues. The idea of building structures and essentially becoming governmental landlords was untested on a national scale. But perhaps the biggest difference in nationwide public housing from its earliest inceptions in the 1930s to today is the way it was talked about and represented to the actual public. In an interview for City Lab, journalist Ben Austin notes that when it was first built, places like Chicago's Cabrini Green were seen as sites of hope and promise. He says, that was one of the great ironies of public housing when it was being demolished. The arguments for replacing it were that we were saving the people living there from death. Those were the exact same arguments that were used to justify building public housing in the first place. So when public housing emerged on the scene as a nationwide initiative, it was accompanied by promises that it would be safe, affordable, government controlled, and regulated. But when did this narrative of hope and potential change? Although there are other crucial plot points between 1937 and the mid 20th century in the larger narrative of public housing and housing development, perhaps the most critical change came in 1965 with the establishment of HUD, or the Department of Housing and Urban Development. HUD marked a huge shift in not only the visibility of public housing officials, but also elevated the platform of public housing. It went from being a more locally operated affair to becoming a cabinet level program. And by the mid 90s, public housing had exploded from a small agency granting mortgage insurance to a massive program with 1.3 million individual housing units managed by approximately 3,400 housing authorities and a sizable budget. But with growth comes growing pains. The initial narrative of public housing was outrage over the deplorable conditions of privately owned slums that led to the creation of promising new developments. And the conversation of public housing's metaphorical back nine was that public facilities were sites of disrepair and neglect. This was reflected not only in the national discourse, but also in the policies of elected officials in the 1980s and 1990s. Public housing had ballooned in a relatively short amount of time and with limited budgets. And suddenly it became a political lightning rod with many politicians looking to either defund it and tear the buildings down altogether, or at least to limit the number of buildings and the scope of HUD. Early housing programs from the Great Depression were restrictive, highly regulated, 
enforced racial segregation, and prohibited single parents. And by the 1980s and 1990s, discussions about housing projects began to use language about race and crime as coded signs that the project themselves were failures. But a 1995 HUD report found that public housing buildings were no more racially segregated than their surrounding neighborhoods. And most often, the racial makeup of an individual building reflected the demographic breakdown of the neighborhood where it was located. And in the midst of the civil rights era of the 20th century, residents began to make demands for improvements to the living conditions inside of the structures. But that also meant that some of the public perceptions of these facilities was that they were only intended for black and brown residents and that they should be defunded, torn down, and the residents should be rehomed to save them from these housing projects. But in the crosshairs of political strife, many people didn't stop to take stock of the reactions and concerns of the residents. Now, grassroots organizing and reports take into account the stories and perspectives of actual residents of public housing, rather than those of the general public and elected officials. Community-driven research from 2010 found a stark difference between the perspectives of residents and the perspectives of the general public gleaned through the media. For example, a review of 400 newspaper articles in the study found that guns and poverty are the two most prevalent words found in articles about public housing. And yet, residents consistently felt that housing projects are actually good places to live and provide affordable rent, despite their own concerns and their need to have more input in the oversight of the buildings. They also assert that, considering the issues of homelessness nationwide, more units need to be built. And many residents have at least one member of the household who is elderly, disabled, or in need of long-term care. So public housing could serve as an alternative way to bridge some crucial gaps in housing possibilities for people with limited or fixed incomes. So the conversation around public housing since its inception has been split. Because the same arguments that were levied against privately owned slums in order to support the creation of public housing are now being used at the tail end of the 20th century and the early 21st century as justification for tearing down public housing. But if we look at it through this longer historical lens, it seems like the conditions people are critical of in public housing aren't inherent to buildings and systems themselves. They're problems that can and do emerge whenever housing is underfunded, not well-regulated, and not well-maintained, regardless of if the units themselves are publicly or privately owned. So, what do you think? This marks... So, that was one perspective. And this, the other perspective that I was mentioning to my brother, and it's a short documentary of what I was saying. And I'm, my, I'm not wrong. I know this is the legitimate way to be seeing things, but you know, every perspective counts. So. Like many songs will tell you. The story of what housing and other living conditions look like for many black Americans is pretty bleak. And that's by design. In addition to artists cataloging their very personal experiences, it's been proven that the modern phenomenon of concentrated Black poverty was an intentional government-sponsored institution. This is in part why President Biden issued an executive order back in January, intended to right the historical wrongs Black folks have faced when it comes to housing and home ownership in this country. But first... Let's take it back. 
the dawn of the 20th century, African Americans in major cities lived scattered throughout the city. They weren't segregated particularly. It's only with the great migration of six to seven million African Americans north and west escaping the south. The predominant response of the United States government and state and local governments to the great migration was to contain black people in their own neighborhoods. And HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, was particularly a part of this role. But the precursors to HUD introduced and encouraged racially restrictive covenants, redlining of every major city where African-Americans landed. The federal government was a sponsor of urban renewal, infamously called Negro removal by the great James Baldwin. Urban renewal, which means moving the Negroes out. It means Negro removal. That is what it means. And the federal government is a is an accomplice to this act. That so-called urban renewal also included a federally sponsored interstate highway system, which was intentionally designed to mow through vibrant black neighborhoods. Take Miami, for example. Two highways, I-95 and I-395, bulldoze right through the predominantly black and low-income Overtown neighborhood, previously called Colored Town during segregation. The Department of Housing and Urban Development and the federal government writ large in the first seven decades of the 20th century invested billions of dollars in racial segregation and concentrated poverty. Each time this country created a peculiar institution that subordinated black people, slavery, Jim Crow, it created and dismantled it. They replaced it with another one. And the iconic black ghetto, I don't use that as a perjurative, I use it as a descriptor, was a follow-on institution to slavery and Jim Crow. That's the legacy that every new administration inherits and the Biden administration has as well. Today, I'm directing the Department of Housing and Urban Affairs and Urban Development to redress historical racism and federal housing policies. This executive order is just one of four signed by President Biden designed to address racial equity in the United States. And while this progress is a step in the right direction, there's still a lot of harm to undo. Segregation started coming down after the passage of the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which actually only got passed in the wake of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. In 1980, eight out of 10 black people would have had to move in order to be evenly integrated within metropolitan areas. Half of black people who live in metropolitan areas still live in neighborhoods of high segregation. So we've had modest improvement, but segregation persists. And economic segregation has spiked since 1970. The so-called American dream is really working for a relatively small slice of the population that can afford to buy their way into what I call gold standard neighborhoods that have the best of everything. And everybody else struggles and the black poor struggle the most. So what happens now? Well, some advocates are hopeful. Home applauds this executive order for really focusing on historical patterns of racial segregation and discrimination in housing, while others remain cautiously optimistic. Here's Professor Cashin's suggestion. I don't take credit for this, but I applaud it. There should be an equity analysis. 
federal government spends so much money, it should track who's getting it by neighborhood, and it should pursue racial equity in the distribution of resources. There's been a lot of movement at the local level on this. A good example of Baltimore, they did an equity analysis and found that they were spending four times as much money in majority white neighborhoods as the majority black ones. I think we're in this moment where people are waking up, sad to say, because of the slow execution of George Floyd, to the realities of systemic racism. And I believe there is an ascending majority multiracial coalition that wants something better than a separate unequal nation that overinvests in some neighborhoods and disinvests and preys upon people in other neighborhoods. I'm hopeful. But you can never stop working for it, organizing for the country you want. New generations more radical and less tired than me. There's always another generation coming. So as you can hear, a lot of it was by design to keep people stagnant because they also knew that putting people in a position where they got to be all cluttered or under each other is going to cause havoc. And that was just another way of the government trying to get back at people. Well, not get back because no one did anything. This another way of them to try to keep people, a group of people, black people, African-American people, stagnant. And that's the sad part. So, I hope you like my podcast session today. I would like to say thanks to everyone who is listening to my podcast. Thanks to every organization that has helped me change my perspective in life. A quick shout out to Osborne, AVP, PACE, Defy Network, NYU's Prison Program, PEP, Thrive for Life Prison Project, And remember, no one wants to do time, but we all need time. Peace and blessings.